0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: Oh uh, wait, you're listening. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. All
3: right. <clears throat> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab.
4: Radio Lab. From? W-N-Y-C. See? Th- Z- yeah.
2: Jad? Hey. Hey. How's it going? Good. I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab with Dispatches 6 through 10. Pat Walters, senior editor, is going to start us off.
3: Okay. Okay. So, you and Molly had this idea to uh, do an episode about the 1918 flu. hmm And whenever I get into something historical, I, I go... I go to the newspaper archives. Okay. I just, I think they're so cool. You know, coronavirus is in the news everywhere. We've been talking about this on the show. And I thought, like, oh, what did this look like in 1918? But yeah, so I decided to just like go, I just like go to the New York Times archive, Mm -hmm. start in October, which was like the peak of the second wave of the 1918 flu. Um, gotcha. so sort of like people are talking about how things are opening up again and like, we might have a, we might have a second spike of the, of the coronavirus. And like, what people are afraid of is that what happened in 1918 will happen now, which is, it was pretty bad when it emerged in the winter of 1918 and the beginning of the year. Uh-huh. And then it kind of went away and then everyone was like, oh, it's gone and went back to normal. And, and that fall it it spiked and like most of the people who died in that flu died in this second fall
2: i didn't know that that's i actually honestly didn't know that that's the trajectory it took it kind of freaks me out i have to be honest anyhow okay sorry so yeah
3: so you go to the new york times in the fall of 1918 and uh, uh and i remember struggling to find the flu It's all World War One. The front page of the paper on October 1st, 1918 has huge, like, 20-point font headline across the whole page. Bulgaria quits the war, Turkey may follow. Uh, war's fiercest fighting on Cambrai front. I don't know what these things mean. I don't understand World War One enough to know what any of this means, but it's just like... All war. French advance on every front. Every day. British take many towns. All fall. Turkey also seeks peace. Austria seeks to quit war. Page two, page three. USS Tampa. There's little maps. There's profiles of officers and different units. What they were doing in the war. Where they were killed. 692 casualties. You have entire articles, which are just names of all the people killed. And you keep going. Page five, six, seven... Pretty much all war stories. You know, as you get into the low teens, you get the flu stories. Just little briefs saying like, St. Louis closed its businesses, or the health commissioner has decided not to close the schools, even though everyone's saying you should close the schools. Mm. Or like, the flu is in China now. And that's the whole story. It's just like... (laughs) Really? Flu in China is the story. Just that sentence? That's it. Oh. So this is how the coverage goes all fall. War stories, war stories, war stories, and and so my favorite example of this situation is December twentieth, nineteen eighteen. Um, it's another day, another another typical day at the New York Times with no flu coverage on the front page. Pretty much no flu coverage until the last page, and there, uh, wedged in between a a very fussy long story about like who owns some cable lines. It's, it's like a half a page long story. I, d- I don't even understand what it was about. And an ad for shirt collars, um, you know, which were a thing then, uh, <laughs> is this tiny five-sentence story with this headline. Six million died of influenza. Oh, f*** off. And the subhead is regarded as world's greatest plague since the Black Death. So this, so this five-sentence story, stuck in the in the last page of the paper, says this. The Times' medical correspondent says that it seems reasonable to believe that throughout the world, about six million persons have died from influenza and pneumonia during the last three months. Oh my God. It has been estimated that the war caused the death of 20 million people in four and a half years. Thus, the correspondent points out, influenza has proved itself five times deadlier than war, because in the same period, at its epidemic rate, influenza would have killed 100 million. Never since the Black Death has such a plague swept over the world, he says, adding that the need of a new survey of public health measures has never been more forcibly illustrated. Oh, my God. That's...
1: I I
2: just... I just... I, it's just... It's just, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay, so the 1918 flu is kind of famous for being forgotten. Wasn't widely taught in schools. You won't find it written about in a lot of novels and plays. But what I didn't realize is that it wasn't just forgotten after the fact. It was ignored in the moment as it was happening. And there are a lot of reasons for this. I mean, you had censorship in certain countries. You had uh, self-censorship in this country, journalists feeling like maybe they had to keep morale up and stay focused on the war. Not to mention there wasn't much anyone felt that they could do about the flu. It was even kind of familiar. Came around every year. And that year, there was just more of it. But on top of that, and this is what I find interesting, they didn't even know what it was. Like, think about a couple months ago, March, coronavirus. Immediately, you began to see these illustrations in the paper of the spiky ball. My kids started drawing pictures of the spiky ball. We all had something we could visualize. Back then, they had no picture of the enemy. They didn't even know the flu was a virus. It was truly invisible. And yet, this tiny, unseen Unspoken of force was reshaping human history in all kinds of surprising ways. This show began with a simple question. What happens afterward, after this? Molly Webster, who you'll hear from later in the program, suggested, well, let's look back at what happened after that one. And that's what we're going to do today. As we enter the summer of coronavirus and look forward to the fall, we have five stories of how the invisible hand of that flu has continued to guide and shape us for the last hundred years and has left the world a very different place. It
5: was in 19, yes,
2: Okay, so these dispatches are a full team affair. We're going to start things off. Well, we started with Pat. We're going to keep it going with reporters Tad Davis and Matt Kilty.
6: Yeah, so Tad and I, we talked to Mm -hmm. a couple of historians. I don't hear. Can you hear? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. John Barry. (laughs) Professor at Tulane University. And Margaret.
5: Oh, hi. Good.
6: Margaret McMillan. Professor at University of Oxford. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, okay. So if we jump in near the end of 1918, um... There's a ceasefire. World War I is coming to an end. And I'm just wondering, like, what's, what's the general mood?
5: Well, you know, there, was, there was this sort of mixed feeling that on the one hand, in the Allied countries, they'd won the war, and, and that at least was over. But it also left a tremendous amount of chaos. Large parts of Europe were in revolution. Empires were collapsing. And probably nine million dead of the combatants. And, and goodness knows how many more who died of starvation or disease so there was a lot of grief, um, a lot of concern about where the world was going. But also I think there was a real longing for some sort of better world.
6: And that new, better world was supposed to come in the form of a peace treaty. So
4: January 1919, all the Allied leaders come together in Paris.
6: And who all were the Allies in World War One?
5: The key ones were France, Great Britain, and then of course the United States.
6: And John told us that when the president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson,
5: arrived in Paris.
7: He entered almost as a conquering Europe.
5: Huge crowds turned out to see him. Because for a lot of Europeans, and not just Europeans, a lot of people around the world, he represented a new hope.
6: Because for the past year, Wilson had been giving these speeches about what the war meant to the United States.
4: And in them, he called for things like peace without victory, that there were no losers in this war.
6: He called for the end of colonialism, imperialism. He called for the creation of this thing that had never existed before that he was calling the League of Nations where countries could just come together to talk through their differences rather than going to war over them.
4: It was all of this that had people calling Wilson the god of
6: justice. But worth mentioning that Wilson you were for
7: him or against him.
6: Was the
5: bit of an ass and that if you disagreed with him he would cut you
6: and more importantly he was also extremely racist uh he's not my favorite president you know his person. which is a whole nother story but with a lot of historical accuracy and a little bit of drama
8: Monsieur le Président,
6: to continue with this story
9: mesdames,
6: january 18th
9: 1919 de de ouverte.
6: In the office of the French Foreign
4: Ministry. 37 nations, 200 delegates, packed into this big conference room.
8: With lots of gold
4: and mirrors. To come up with this peace treaty that they would eventually send to the enemy, Germany.
6: And at the front of the room, at this long table, were our two main players. Woodrow Wilson. And right next to him, this short, bald man with a big white mustache. The Prime Minister of France, Georges Clemenceau. He looks like Mr. Monopoly.
7: <laughs> but Clemenceau was, was ferocious. His nickname was the tiger.
6: And unlike
4: Wilson, he was someone who, quote, had no real interest in humanity as a whole. His sole concern
6: was for France. And this would be a bit of a problem because Clemenceau, <clears throat> when it came to the enemy... Germany. I don't think there is any question. He wanted him treated like
5: an enemy. That we are here to decide the issue of German guilt and ultimately German reparations. Because as the French kept on saying, we didn't start the war. Germany declared war on us and the
6: conduct of Germany is almost unexampled in human history.
5: The damage done to France was enormous.
6: The French had lost more men in the war than any other country.
5: Everyone in France had someone who died, knew someone who died. There must be justice for the
4: dead and wounded. Whole villages had been Wiped out, towns destroyed. And for those who have been orphaned and
5: bereaved. He was saying someone should pay for this and it should be Germany. Because Germany saw fit to
7: gratify her loss for tyranny by resort to war. He essentially wanted to put the boot on Germany's neck.
4: He didn't want Germany just to pay. He wanted payback for what Germany did. He wanted revenge. Problem was... Wilson didn't. Wilson wanted to go easy on Germany. It was this
6: whole peace without victory thing. So, Wilson and Clemenceau, they'd get together...
5: Virtually every day. Privately. ...offered in Woodrow Wilson's study. There'd be a nice little spread. Tea and coffee and chocolate eclairs and things.
6: And the two of them... George. ...would go at it. How long must we repeat history? Wilson preaching peace and unity. Before we learn that revenge won't work. And Clemenceau... Your history is a short one. Being just like, look, the Germans... The Germans must pay. ...need to be brought to their knees. The Germans are defeated. And they would argue back and forth. They must not... Be destroyed and back and forth. The Germans have attacked us before. They'll do it again. And they'd argue about the League of Nations. We need to be just. About German reparations. Justice is what Germany shall have. And these negotiations, justice for the people, started to drag. Who now stagger under the war debts, which exceed thirty billion pounds, and drag. They cannot. No one seems to be pay that much. Budging. And eventually, things started to get diplomatically uh, heated.
4: John told us that after one meeting, Wilson turned to an aide and
7: called the French, quote, damnable. In
4: another meeting, you, sir, and so-called Wilson ah,
7: pro-German. Pro-German and left the
4: room. At one point, the British Prime Minister, who was always in these talks,
5: he said, I feel as like I'm sitting between Napoleon
7: pour qui me prends and... In- I am not thinking only of Germany.
10: Jesus Christ. I am thinking about the future of the world.
6: And this went on January. We must... Make peace. February, March. There is no peace. Then eventually Wilson... He gets angry. So much so... I want the steam engines prepared. That he threatens to just leave to go back to the States.
7: On several occasions.
5: And Clemenceau said rather
7: unkindly... He's like a kook who keeps the trunk ready
6: in the hallway.
7: Because Wilson could never actually bring himself to go. Late March, Wilson told his wife, quote, Well, thank God I can still fight and I'll win.
6: A few days later, he tells an aide. We've got to make peace on the principles laid down and accepted or not make it at all. That was April 2nd. Then the next day after that,
7: April 3rd,
2: <laughs>
7: Wilson gets sick. The quote is, uh, his doctor, Wilson was seized with violent fits of coughing, which were so severe and frequent that it interfered with his breathing, unquote.
4: He had a fever. His fever hit 103. His health starts deteriorating so fast that his doctor thought he was poisoned.
7: Because of intestinal symptoms.
6: Does that just mean like stomach pain? Yeah, and vomiting, diarrhea. Turns out all symptoms of influenza. By this point, April 1919, millions of people had already died of the flu. There had been these three big waves. And John told us this kind of remarkable thing is that as the flu had been rampaging, Wilson had never spoken of it. Not once. Not
7: publicly. He was focused entirely on the war. That's all he cared about. And here's
6: Wilson in Paris trying to put an end to the Great War, trying in some ways, he thought, to put an end maybe to just like war forever while the third wave of the flu was moving through Paris. Now, Whether Wilson contracted the flu.
5: I think we'll never know.
6: Margaret points out, like, we truly can't know.
5: It could have been. I think it was more than a cold. I mean, he really was very sick. But for
6: John, who wrote a whole book about the 1918 flu, he's like, a lot of the classic symptoms were there diarrhea, nausea, fever, coughing, uh, shortness of breath, and also this one peculiar symptom
7: mental disorder.
6: John said for people who contracted the flu back then. It's
7: extremely common to be
4: disoriented. To feel restless. To become delirious. <laughs> and Wilson Do you hear them? Definitely showed those symptoms. They're-
1: Right outside the door.
7: One of Wilson's closest aides. <laughs> Said nothing we could say to disabuse his mind of the thought. They
1: hear
6: me. Sir, who are you talking about? That the
7: home was filled with French spies. The French.
6: Also,
4: around this time, Wilson. Take the chairs. According to an aide. wired a
7: peculiar notion. Move them. Move them. That he was personally responsible. Straight lines. for all the property and the furnished place he was occupying. Put them in straight lines. Something queer was happening in his mind. The British prime minister referred to it as quote, nervous and spiritual breakdown. Clemenceau,
6: when he got wind,
7: he is worse today. Said to someone, do you know his doctor? Can you get around him and bribe him? At the same time, Wilson's doctor is saying these are terrible days for the president.
4: Wilson would be sick and in bed for about a week. But even after he recovered, one of his aides said, quote,
7: one thing was certain, he was never the same after this little spell of sickness. April 8th, he goes back to the peace conference,
4: back to negotiating with Clemenceau. But
7: he's a different man. He's weaker.
4: Even one of his Secret Service aides noticed Wilson lacked his
7: old quickness of grasp and tired easily, unquote.
6: And this is the thing is that John said after Wilson got sick, gave in on
7: practically every point,
6: he seemed to just fold to Clemenceau.
4: He went in with this idea to go light on Germany and
6: came out with almost the opposite. The final treaty called for everything Clemenceau wanted, harsh reparations on Germany, a huge reduction in its military, a loss of a bunch of territory. Germany was pretty much eviscerated. As Germany's foreign minister put it, quote, they could have expressed the whole thing more simply in one clause. Germany renounces its existence, unquote. Now,
4: Wilson did end up getting his League of Nations, but Germany in the end wasn't allowed to join it which was pretty much a slap in the face. Uh, but some people say because Wilson got this big thing that he wanted all along, that's why he was willing to give up on everything else. But I don't think so.
7: What he did in caving in was so foreign to everything in his personality and everything in his history. I can't prove it was a disease, but I don't see another reasonable explanation. And after Wilson made the concessions. A whole group of his top but younger aides met and considered whether they should resign in protest. One of them wrote Wilson a blistering letter of resignation.
6: It came from a diplomat named William C. Bullitt. Quote,
7: I am sorry that you did not fight our fight to the finish and that you had so little faith in the millions of men like myself in every nation who had faith in you. Our government has consented now to deliver the suffering peoples of the world to new oppressions, subjections, and dismemberments, a new century of war.
4: June 28, 1919, the Germans would eventually sign what is known as the Treaty of Versailles. And what happens next is something that's debated by historians. There's some like Margaret who say,
5: There was a real problem here, and that was increasingly Germans felt they hadn't lost.
4: There was this growing sentiment amongst Germans that they could have won the war. It was just that, like, these liberal leaders surrendered too soon. And so if you feel you
5: haven't lost, no treaty is going to seem fair.
4: But there are many historians who say that this treaty, the Treaty of Versailles, which was so harsh on Germany, pretty much forced them into a depression, humiliated the German people by blaming them for the war, that, that this treaty would sort of create this foundation for the rise of the Nazis. And obviously everything that followed. The Holocaust, Pearl Harbor, D-Day, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the deaths of upwards of 80 million people. and it's it's kind of made me think a lot about Paris 1919 how there was this moment where you had these two important men Wilson and Clemenceau who would be sitting at some table in Wilson's study or that big long table in the conference room and argue about what the world should become after the end of this first great war and i don't I, I keep i sort of keep imagining that like in those rooms where Wilson and Clemenceau are sitting that there's this other chair there this empty chair you know it's over by itself no one's paying attention to it and I just keep thinking how it was almost as if the virus itself kind of had a seat at the table
2: Tad Davis and Matt Kilty. Okay, so a lot of the recorded history of the 1918 flu is rather Eurocentric. In this next dispatch, which comes from reporter Sara Kari, we're going to tell a story about how the flu gave the arc of history in this one particular individual a little nudge all the way on the other side of the world.
11: So the place where it starts kind of is... It's May of 1918. I think it's like May 29th, 1918. There's a ship that docks in the port city of Bombay, now known as Mumbai. It's carrying Indian troops home from World War I.
3: I didn't know India fought in World War I. No one
11: yeah.
9: Indian
3: soldiers prepare to embark for service overseas.
11: India was a British colony at the time, so about a million Indian soldiers were off fighting the war for the British.
3: Splendid soldiers, splendid fighters. They will give a good account of themselves wherever they may serve.
11: Some of them were in like France and Belgium. Also others, like the ones getting off this ship were coming from Mesopotamia, which is now Iraq. Anyway, so this ship, it's only there for about 48 hours. But in those 48 hours, In addition to those soldiers, the flu also disembarks. A few days later, this one police officer that had been stationed at the dock shows up at the hospital running a fever. Then six other police officers get sick. A few days later, it's a bunch of men working for a local shipping company. Then it's people working at the dockyard. The disease starts to spread through the city of Bombay, and from there, throughout India. Now, meanwhile, just north of Bombay, in the state of Gujarat, there's a man that's taking the train from city to city, giving speeches. He's a lawyer, activist, big proponent of nonviolent resistance, and his name is Mohandas Gandhi.
3: Ah.  — —
11: This is him speaking much later, but just to help you imagine.
3: —
11: And the thing is, like, in these speeches, he's actually recruiting people to fight in World War One for the British. — Really? It's very surprising, right? I mean, Gandhi definitely had some blind spots. He even, like, made some racist comments about black people when he was in South Africa. And when it came to India, he had this idea that, like, if Indians fight for the British, then they will, in return, get more autonomy. To quote from some of these speeches that he gave, India has altogether lost the capacity to fight. It has not a particle of the courage it should have. We are regarded as a cowardly people. If we want to become free from that reproach, we should learn the use of arms. So for him, it was a show of strength, but also kind of like a bargaining chip.
2: I see. So he thought if Indians prove their strength, the British would reward them.
11: Yeah, something like that. So through that summer, the flu is spreading through India, Gandhi is running around giving speeches. And then all of a sudden, on August 17th, he writes a letter where he says, I'm on my back.
2: Is that what he literally said? I'm on my back? Yeah. That's like the letter equivalent of a text message. Like, <laughs> sick, can't talk. Exactly. What else does he
11: say? He says, Dear Mr. Henderson, I'm on my back. I'm passing through the severest illness of my life, and I was incapable of sending you a letter earlier.
2: And he, so he got the flu?
11: Well, it's kind of unclear. Like, one person I spoke to argued that it could have been the flu. Uh, other people said it probably wasn't. We honestly can't know for sure. According to Gandhi's own account, he got food poisoning from something that he ate and came down with a case of dysentery. But the thing is, it was really bad. The appetite had all gone. I had all along thought that I had an iron frame, but I found that my body had now become a lump of clay. I have almost to crawl to reach the lavatory, and I have such griping pain that I feel like screaming. I wanted to scream all the time, but controlled the urge with great effort. I longed to die and be free from it all. It went on for about five months, like approximately from August of 1918 to somewhere around January of the next year, which lines up exactly with the time of that terrible second wave of the flu in India. And so at the exact time that Gandhi was on his back, so was India, like it was utter devastation. And the colonial government was basically doing nothing. The sanitary commissioner of the state of Punjab writes, The hospitals were choked so that it was impossible to remove the dead quickly enough to make room for the dying. The streets and lanes of cities were littered with dead and dying people. The postal and telegraph services were completely disorganized. The train service continued, but at all the principal stations, dead and dying were being removed from the trains. The burning cot, which is a cremation site, and burial ground were literally swamped with corpses, whilst an even greater number awaited removal. Nearly every household was lamenting a death, and everywhere terror and confusion reigned. Wow. You know, in the US, we had about half a million people that died from the flu. In India it was somewhere between 10 and 20 million people just in those few months.
2: Oh my god. Which is
11: more than the number of soldiers that died in World War 1 globally. Like we talk about the forgotten flu but the part that was most forgotten was what happened in India.
2: Wow, well, yeah. And Gandhi's on his back that, through that whole period?
11: Yeah. He finds out that his son and daughter-in-law have come down with the Spanish flu as well. His daughter-in-law actually ended up dying from it. Wow. I actually started reading through some of his letters from this time. And they're fascinating because you see him go from, like, writing these long screeds about politics and war recruiting to, like, real soul-searching. For instance, around October or so, about two months into his illness, he's so sick that he starts to think that he might die. Dear Harilal, I have a feeling that I'm now going. I have very little time left. The body is becoming weaker and weaker. You start to see him kind of contemplating his own life. But the inheritance of character, which I'm leaving to you, is invaluable in my view. I wish you to cherish it. Follow the path of religion. The more I contemplate this illness, the more deeply I realize what love of man to man must be, and therefore love of God. He's like reflecting on God, and nature is God, and God is love. And nature and Gandhi had this philosophy about illness where mysterious is the way karma works itself out. Any illness that you experience, often is something that you've brought on to yourself. We reap as we sow, we get what we deserve. In this illness, I can see my own fault at every step. Because he thought that way about illness, when he actually got sick, he started to reflect, what have I done to bring this on? And if you read his letters, it seems like part of that was realizing that recruiting for the war effort was misguided. One need not assume that heroism is to be acquired only by fighting in a war. One can do so even while keeping out of it. War is one powerful means, among many others, but if it is a powerful means, it is also an evil one. The way to have strength is not to fight for the British in a war, of all things. We can cultivate manliness in a blameless way. It was to fight against them through nonviolent means. Mm Mm-hmm. What ends up happening is he emerges from his illness.
10: As he moves across the dusty roads of India, this frail little man marshals his people.
11: And begins speaking to crowds again. The war is over, he's done recruiting, and he says now that...
10: It is not wrong to defy
11: laws that are unfair. We have to resist. By this time, the British have passed a law allowing them to arrest people without really any reason... And the people of India, meanwhile, have been through all of this death and suffering and seen that the colonial government was powerless to help them or just didn't care to. So this time, the crowds are much bigger. They're ready for Gandhi's message.
7: The temper of the people rose, and so did the
10: temper of the alien government.
11: To which the British respond by...
10: ...flares into open violence
11: cracking down even further, massacring hundreds of people in a city called Amritsar. And in the wake of that, Gandhi writes, It seems I shall have to fight the greatest battle of my life. Wow.
10: From a handful of demonstrators, the marchers become a crowd. And then an army, unstoppable. Gandhi's name becomes their battle cry.
11: It's a long time before Indians actually get their independence, um, I think 28 years to be exact. But this moment, when the Spanish flu sweeps India, and both India and Gandhi emerge from this time of extreme hardship. I think you can say that this is the moment. where independence really starts to take shape.
2: Coming up, dangerous bodies, ether ghosts, pig reservoirs, and whale flu. It's right after the break. Science Reporting on Radio Lab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science.
0: Radio Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Go to ZBiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's ZBiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off.
3: For so many black people, the Wiz feels like home. (laughs)
2: The idea for this set of dispatches is simple. As we head into the summer of corona and into the uncertainty of the next few months, we thought it was a good time to sort of look forward by looking back to the aftermath of the 1918 flu and to chart the many ways that the silent, invisible hand of that flu virus has shaped human history. This next one comes from producer Latif Nasser. All right, I'm ready. Okay. Take me on a journey, Latif, back in time,
8: and and uh, you're going back in time, and you're going across the globe. Nice to Vienna. Okay. Uh, in the early 1900s. Okay. I mean, it's the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but it's really it's like it's like one of the cultural capitals of the world. Um, it has this you know great classical legacy, you know like Mozart and Beethoven and Hofburg Palace and that kind of thing. But at this moment in the early 1900s, it's just like. Bursting into modernity mm. and there was one point in nineteen thirteen where in within about two miles in central Vienna, you could find Stalin, Trotsky, Freud, and Hitler. Um, <laughs> like, like they would have been going to the same coffee shop't <laughs> that crazy? Is that true? Yeah, yeah, oh my god so anyway, so so Vienna was this place in time where it's like, wow, this has a sort of disproportionate Mark on the 20th century, Mm. right? And uh, I want to tell you about a guy who was at that place at that time uh, named Egon Schiele.
2: Egon Schiele, okay. So
8: 1907, at the time he was a teenager, Uh, he wanted to be an artist, uh, studied at the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts, but he found his teacher so stifling that he drops out. And he decides to seek out his idol, one of the best known artists in all of Vienna, Gustav Klimt.
2: Oh, he, he had the, a famous painting that there was like a woman that people put up on their dorm rooms. Yeah,
8: yeah, yeah. It's like she's like in gold leaf. It's called The Kiss. Yes, that um, one. yeah. That's Klimt. So you have this like teenage art school dropout approaching his artistic hero who's 30 years a senior and supposedly kind of the way the story goes, uh, Sheila shows him some of his sketches. He asks him whether he has any talent and Klimt says much too much. Mm. It's this sort of monumental moment. And within a few years, Sheila skyrockets to success. And in exhibitions, like you you'll find their work alongside each other. Wow. Um, no kidding. Now, just to give you a sense of what this guy Sheila, what what his work is like, like th- this guy's not a bowl of fruit guy. Um, he loves drawing portraits, and including and especially nudes. Like He draws men, women, uh, male couples, female couples, himself masturbating, women masturbating. A lot of people at the time considered him a pornographer. He even gets arrested and thrown in jail at one point. And then they just let him out of jail a few weeks later. And you can see why people found some of his work unsettling. Like, uh, uh, he would be drawing his sister, like, very detailed nudes of his sister, uh, n- detailed nudes of, like, underage girls, you know, sickly people. Uh, uh, there's a drawing he does, like, of the scrotum of a, of a newborn baby boy. Wow. Like, it's weird. It's really weird. And one of the Sheila experts I talked to, Verena Gomper, she was like, to Sheila... Painting bodies was a way of investigating the deepest questions about life. And just looking at them myself, like, you can see, like, he just wanted to see people. Yeah. um, And and the way people actually were, not the way they were supposed to look, like, just the way they really actually looked. Mm. So, a few years later, uh, 1915, he marries Edith Harms. Okay. Three days after the wedding, he has to report for active duty in the Austrian military. A couple of years later, he gets reassigned back to Vienna, and uh, soon after he finds out that his mentor, Gustav Klimt, is in the hospital. Hmm. Klimt had a stroke, and uh, while he's in the hospital recuperating, he contracts pneumonia. So Sheila goes to basically goes to see his mentor on his deathbed, but he's too late. Uh-huh. So, instead, he goes to the morgue and sits next to Klimt's body, and starts to sketch him, like almost like a, like a death mask. You know, like it's yeah. like he's making a death mask or something like that.
2: Like trying to freeze freeze him or something, or 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 hold him or something. Yeah,
8: yeah, yeah, exactly. So Klimt dies, and sort of his shield is reeling from the death of his mentor. He's actually professionally doing better than ever. The whole Vienna art scene sees him as this rock star. Um, He buys a new, like, big studio, and he talks about how he was going to convert his old studio into this kind of new, revolutionary, kind of like art school It wasn't just going to be a kind of a traditional art school um, the way that he had gone to. He hoped that there would be these kind of cohorts of artists behind him that he could help train the way he wished he had been trained. And besides that, his wife, Edith, she becomes pregnant. But then comes uh, the fall when the big second wave of the flu pandemic hits. Mm. And, according to the Sheila biographer Jane Collier, um there's this family story that uh, Edith, who was by this point six months pregnant uh she decides to go out and get some groceries. She goes downtown and comes back with the flu. Oh
2: wow,
8: so Sheila just attends to her over the next couple of days and just has to watch as she's you know struggling to breathe and as she and also obviously uh their unborn child just kind of start to fade away. Wow. And the the night before she dies, she asks for a a pen and paper and writes this kind of barely legible note with super loopy handwriting uh which says something like I love you and I love you endlessly Edith. Wow. Um And Sheila, he's sort of sitting next to her, and and just like he did with Klimt, he he just sketches her. So he makes this really gut-wrenchingly sad portrait of Edith.
11: You see her in the bed.
8: Sheila biographer Jane Collier.
11: Uh, Her head is propped up on pillows. Her eyes are half closing but trying to stay open you see her, her fading
8: away. So she died that night? So she lived through the night she died in the morning. And then it's that same day that Sheila first starts to shiver. Oh, wow. So for the next three days, he lays in bed with a high fever, um, and he, he dies the same day as her funeral. Whoa. Yeah, he was he was twenty eight. She was twenty five.
2: Wow. So, uh, that's that's horrible. Like this guy who's about whose life is about to just explode, suddenly has these yeah three deaths in rapid succession. Um. Wow. What do you make of that?
8: One of the ideas that uh, the biographer Jane Collier brought up was this term that Gertrude Stein coined called the Lost Generation.
11: And when we hear that phrase, usually you think of F. Scott Fitzgerald or Hemingway. The the,
8: the nihilism the of young people who lived through the 19-teens. But there's another way to read it. Uh,
11: the lost generation were people who were literally lost. They weren't there anymore. They were gone.
8: And in a way, Sheila is one of the, kind of the, the crystallizations of that like he's one of the clearest examples of that someone who was brilliant someone who's prolific like he 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 had this sort of spark um that was that was snuffed out mm. so that made me wonder like what would it what would it have been like if if they had survived like how would modern art how would the modern world be different um and so I, it's funny like i asked these two different scholars Um, And they had kind of the same answer, which was sort of striking. They they were like, Sheila was into drawing people, right? He was into drawing bodies. He was into drawing these human figures. Um, But after the war, modern art in Europe moves away from figural work, like human figures, and then towards abstraction. And it was only relatively recently that Sheila's work became in vogue again.
2: Wow. That's kind of... That gives me chills just thinking about that. It's like for somebody who so passionately took in the human form to then in the wake of the pandemic and the war, it's just too painful to take in the human forms anymore. So we have to look away, Hmm. you know?
8: Yeah. That's kind of what I hear in that story. Yeah, and and, and it does feel like between the war and the pandemic, like that whole generation must have seen the human body in such like in its most – like, seen it in the frailest way, in the most visceral way. Like, it's like, oh, I don't want to see that anymore.
2: Well, don't you have—I mean, I I remember you saying something like this. I mean, I—bodies look dangerous now. Mm. I saw this picture. It was one of those, um, like—it was a Condé Nast publication that I guess had been done right before the pandemic, and it had on the cover these two millennials embracing and kissing each other. And I remember seeing this photo and just recoiling— the 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 the, yeah. the the idea of two human bodies touching, I was like, oh no. Yeah. Get away from each other. Like there's some way in which the <laughs> yeah, human body, like the the this it's 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 radioactive now.
8: It's it's weird because there's a way in which I don't know. It's like at this moment our bodies are simultaneously they seem so dangerous and like like weapons. Um but then also like our bodies seem so vulnerable. Like the idea that like someone's you know knee on a neck like could be yeah. could be that devastating, you know? Um like it just it, like you feel it, I don't know. It's like it's like at this moment there's these two conflicting things like it's like bodies is so vulnerable and bodies is so dangerous.
12: Mm.
2: Producer Latov Nasser. Next up, Rachel Cusick. Okay. I am at your service. All right. Ready to be inspired and amazed.
9: Well, I don't know how much I'm gonna inspire you, because I think you know a lot of what I'm about to say because you are a radio man. But I appreciate you faking enthusiasm for the next 30 minutes. I'm really No, <laughs> I'm not gonna fake
2: it. It's sort of like Oh my uh, god, my
9: sorry, my child just scared. The- out
2: of me Um, but anyhow okay so where where would you like to launch in
9: let's start in the fall of 1919 the war is over the flu is winding down and we're in pittsburgh
10: with this guy frank conrad who had been a ham operator before the war and once the war ends in his garage he um you know sets up his Or resets up his amateur station. So that's Susan Douglas, uh,
9: radio historian.
10: And I am a professor of communication and media at the Ah. University of Michigan. And back then, radio broadcasts were really just Morse
9: code. Just a bunch of
10: beeps, boops. But Frank was about to change that. He worked for Westinghouse, which was an electrical manufacturing company. So he thus had access to vacuum tubes that were used for transmission. And all you need to know about vacuum tubes is
9: that they were the secret bit of technology that let radio go from this to this thing that's full of life. But also in that moment in history in the wake of the flu, weirdly made us confront death. Absolutely. So on October 17th, 1919, Frank is in his garage with these fancy vacuum tubes. And then he picks up a microphone.
10: Pushed up to, uh, you know, a phonograph.
9: And music floated out of Frank's little garage into the air. There's no recording of this broadcast. All we know is that Frank talked a little, played some music. And about 35 miles away, all the way across Pittsburgh, those sounds reached the ears of a little boy named Harry Mills.
0: I remember
12: it was 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and all at once this voice appears. And I remember letting out a yelp or a shout of some sort, and my dad, who had, who had just gotten out of the bath, come in wrapped in a towel to be sure I was all right.
1: Something hadn't happened to me. And I said, Dad, look, I'm hearing this fellow talking. And uh, we shared the headphones. We only had one pair of headphones, and he allowed us. I was right.
2: That what what a moment that must have been. Can you right? Suddenly, like
9: imagine that that like that's never happened before. You didn't realize that the radio could even do that. Yeah. And then his voice, like, fills your bedroom. I think that's just the coolest thing
10: ever. It's,
2: it's super cool.
10: And other people thought it was pretty cool, too. One of the Pittsburgh newspapers began reporting on this. And one word literally got out. That it was this guy broadcasting a voice and music. From his garage in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Soon, all of these places. America needs a tidal wave of the old time religion. Religious organizations. Union makes strong Labor unions. Wanted to do what Frank did in his garage. In the Rose
2: Bowl, Michigan lives up to a-
10: Colleges and universities. <laughs> uh, newspapers, the Boy Scouts. Everybody wanted in on this.
3: Solidarity, Solidarity should rest on the and the
9: And at this moment, the radio you'd have in your home is really just a bunch of coils
10: and wires. And a crystal. There was this little wire, and it was called a cat whisker. And you would basically move it around the crystal until you got something.
7: And in came the world. People have been asking me for the last two days, why put a ventriloquist on the air? The answer is, why not?
12: And appreciate it if anyone hearing
10: this broadcast would communicate with us. As you'd move the whisker around at that crystal. You were not just hearing voice and music. You were hearing howls. You were hearing screeches. You were hearing static. All of this kind of atmospheric noise that was. Go ahead, please really creepy and really weird, you know?
9: You heard all of these sounds that lived between the voices, between the everyday human world, and something that stretched beyond it.
10: And let's remember the context, by the end of World War One, between 10 and 20 million people had been killed. And then another 50 million or so were killed by the flu. Pretty
9: much everybody knew somebody who had died. A friend or a family member
10: or a loved one. And they were... Desperate for some kind of way of coping.
9: And so when people heard these mysterious voices on the
10: radio... Hello? Hello there. A lot of them wondered, Is somebody trying to reach me? Are they okay on the other side? Is there another side? Can I communicate with the undead?
9: Susan says this was a real moment where spiritualism took off.
10: Ouija boards were um, flying off the shelves. People did go to seances.
9: People thought maybe my brother or mother or cousin or whoever else I lost was out there, floating around in this space called the ether.
10: Which is also where people believed the radio waves lived. And so explorations of the ether, um, you know, via radio, might be the way in which we could connect with the dead.
9: Hmm. It's so interesting, like, I don't think I ever would have come across these stories in any other moment in time, like in my own heart and head. And felt, like, any sort of sympathy for the people who wanted to believe in the spiritualists, like, who would go to seances and buy Ouija boards, but, like, the moment we're living in right now where... I'm speaking to you from my closet and I haven't seen anyone besides my roommate in weeks. <laughs> and like the other day I was like, cause I'm in a, an apartment with one other person and I had just been talking to my roommate for so long and I was like, all right, I gotta get out of this, but there's no excuse to get out of here. And then I was just like, oh yeah, I got a phone call with my, my siblings there. I gotta go. <laughs> and, and then I walked into my room and just to like play it off, like I actually had a phone call. Yeah. I, um, I just like began speaking as if I was speaking to my siblings and like responding to these imaginary things that they would say like I imagined my sister would be talking about her baby and then my other sister would be talking about this dinner she made and I would respond and imagine and I must have sounded crazy and I do sound <laughs> crazy but it felt so good to like do that it was like it was like playing house or like make make believe but it felt so real and I just I don't think I ever would have done it before this moment. But it just I just have this sense of empathy for those people. You know, and I'm just as crazy as they are, I guess. Yeah.
2: Producer Rachel Cusick. Okay. Rounding things out. Molly
13: Webster. So so far we've done a lot of stories about human history and human experience. Mm. But my nineteen eighteen thing was what happened to the virus
2: yeah because
13: i mean at the time we couldn't see it we didn't have the technology to see it we didn't even know it was a virus we didn't know that much about viruses and so it really was an unseen force but that all changed in 1997 thanks in a big way to a guy named johan holton
2: Johan Holton.
13: Yeah, he is like a legend as a science adventurer. And so basically, the story goes is like, Johan got very interested in trying to see if they could get a sample of the 1918 flu and learn about it. So we went to Brevig Mission, Alaska, which is a very, very cold place where bodies would be preserved. And there was a known flu outbreak there late in the pandemic that killed most of the village. Mm. And so he dug down into the permafrost, where there was essentially this mass grave, went into bodies, mm. took out portions of the lungs, then sent those samples to a lab in Washington, D.C., Run by this guy. Hello, it's Jeff Taubenberger. Hey, Jeff, it's Molly Webster. How Hi. are you? Good. How are you? Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger.
12: I'm a senior investigator at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland.
13: Anyways, back in 1997, Jeff took those samples into the lab and he was able to... Kind of really see the virus itself so if you if you
12: sequence um, all the the genes of the 1918
13: virus, which as you did uh, we did in my lab
12: <laughs> yeah. back in the, in the 1990s
13: and uh, what he saw, so was, to speak, was all of this genetic material uh, called RNA influenza
12: is an RNA virus, but the RNA that makes up the genome of the influenza virus is not just on one. String one continuous strand of RNA. Huh. It's on eight separate little pieces called segments. Really, you can think
13: of. According that, to Jeff, you can think of those segments as genes. So there are eight different genes, all doing different things.
12: And once you have that exact sequence, it now you can do very careful genealogy.
13: By comparing those genes to other genes and other flus, from 1918 all the way up to today...
12: You can just follow it and you can look at how things change over time.
13: You can put together a very thorough life history of this virus. Yeah, it's a, a crazy story. The first thing to know is that when the pandemic petered out, like around 1920 or so, the virus itself did not.
12: No, the pandemic virus never went away. It just uh, started circulating annually, causing influenza.
13: And as more and more people became immune to it, it basically became like the normal flu.
12: Spread person to person.
13: Through 1921 and 22.
12: Changing a little bit every single year.
13: Enough so it wouldn't die out because of immunity, but we're still talking about the same baseline flu that infected and killed everyone in 1918, running around, dominant virus, traveling all over the world.
12: Uh, Throughout the 20s and beyond.
13: Through the 1920s, the 1930s. 1940s goes into the 1950s, and then we get to 1957. Somehow, in
12: 1957, um, a dual infection occurred between the human virus that derived from 1918 and an unknown bird virus.
2: Wait, wait there's, so there's this is there's a meeting so now there's of two, two viruses right at the two, doorstep to a cell?
13: Yeah. Yes. And because they were both flu viruses, they both had those eight gene segments, which means they could mix and match those genes and create a new virus. It's like a plug and play or
12: something. Yeah. Think of um, Lego blocks. You know, you can put them together in different ways as long as you have a complete set.
13: So these two viruses end up swapping their genes and the 1918 virus ends up with three new genes. Now. Two of those genes make very important proteins. The two major
12: proteins that are sticking out on the surface of the virus, like the little spikes that stick out from membrane around the virus.
13: Those two proteins are abbreviated H and N. So the 1918 virus was H1N1. And when it bumped into this other virus, it got a new H and a new N.
12: When that happened, what you had was a new virus that had all the core machinery that had already been adapted to humans of the 1918 virus, but it now had proteins on the surface that nobody had immunity to, and so it could cause a new pandemic.
13: After almost 40 years of, you know, being the regular old flu and making people sick, but like not that sick, in 1957, all of a sudden there was a new version of this virus. H2N2 virus. And thanks to that new H&N, it killed over a million people worldwide and over 100,000 in the U.S.
11: And it's It's like a
13: serial killer that went and changed its clothes or something.
12: Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the core of the virus was still derived from
13: 1918.
12: And then uh, the crazy huh. thing is that just 11 years later, 1968, that 1957 virus interacted in some way, somehow with another bird virus. Did the gene
13: swapping thing again, got itself a new H. And that became H3. What? But the N2 from 1957
12: stayed the same. Uh, with the backbone of, 19- yes, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, It's five genes from the 1918 virus. Two genes from the 1968 virus and one gene from the 1957 virus. And then in 1977, the H1N1 virus, all eight genes from the 1918 virus that stopped circulating in 1957, came back into human circulation no. 20 years later. Yes. Wow. And that H1N1 virus co circulated with the H3N2 virus so that we had two different strains competing with each other for annual flu season. And uh, and then that circulated until they were replaced by a new pandemic that had a really complicated and mixed up origin and relation to 1918.
13: Okay, so to understand this next part, um, you have to know that most flus come from birds, and they go into us, but they can go into other animals, too.
12: Horses or dogs, whales and seals and camels and bats that have flu. That Whales? They
13: probably all have a... Re- yes, whales. Whales. Um, <laughs>
12: Influenza viruses are incre- the
13: The the reason that that matters is it turns out that way back at the beginning of our story. The 1918 virus
12: most likely went from humans to pigs in 1918. Whoa. And then the virus adapted to pigs and made a, a pig-specific lineage of the 1918 virus that became swine influenza. Oh, my God.
13: And so the human strain of 1918 goes off and it goes through the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and onwards and onwards. Well, the pig strain is doing the same thing. It's going through the piggy 1920s and then the piggy 1930s and the piggy 1940s, and it's doing little changes along the way. And at some point, they give it back to us. In a complex set
12: of swapping genes between human viruses, pig viruses, and bird viruses, a new virus was created that has some of the genes from the 1918 virus, but some are derived from its human descendants. Two of them are derived from its swine flu descendants, and then a couple other genes from uh, a bird virus. Uh, And that led to a new H1N1 virus in
8: 2009. This is so wild.
13: (laughs) I know. But... Pig detour aside, I think the thing that was crazy about what Jeff told me is that the that that virus, the one that had the backbone of 1918, the one in 1968,
12: the 1968 H3N2 virus became the dominant form of influenza and is still the dominant form of influenza today. Really? Um, more than 50 years later. uh,
13: Does that mean that, like, the flu I might have gotten this past winter is built on the backbone of the 1918 strain? It absolutely is.
12: And, you know, here's the thing I think that's important to think about. If our data are correct, that a single transmission event from a bird virus to humans... uh, say, just before 1918 that led to the emergence of this new pandemic virus, not only the tens of millions of people who died in the pandemic itself, estimated at least between 50 and maybe even 100 million people, Mm. but that the tens of millions of people who have died of influenza in the last 102 years are all directly related to a single event in which a bird virus adapted to humans.
13: Sometime before 1918, and no one really knows when, like a human, you know, touched some bird poop and scratched their nose or ate an infected chicken or like hugged a turkey or something. And this virus went from that bird, snuck into that human, and from there it went from human to human to human to human to human to human to human 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 every day of every year for the last 102 years.
12: So the 1918 virus um, is ultimately responsible to all the flu deaths that have occurred in a hundred years, which is stunning to think about.
2: Wow! So the pandemic never finished, in a way. Right. It does also make you wonder. I mean, like, here we are with the coronavirus six months in. Like, are we at the start of some crazy 102-year journey with this virus?
13: Hello. Hi. 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 Hello.
2: So we actually called up the best person we could think of to answer that question. Okay, Dr. Fauci, such an honor to talk to you. Sure. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who probably at this point doesn't need an introduction, but when we got him on the line, we told him what we had learned about the 1918 virus, formed several times into smaller pandemics, right. stretching all the way into the 70s. And then we just asked him, "Do you see that sort of legacy stretching forward for COVID 19? Like in a hundred years, are we going to look back on it the way we look back on 1918
1: now?" You know, yeah, you know, it it, uh, it is conceivable, but un- unpredictable and not inevitable. So, so COVID 19 is a brand new virus. Uh, It doesn't have the reassortment capabilities that the flu has. It doesn't have gene segments that would allow for what we call easy reassortment.
2: First thing he told us is that the coronavirus doesn't have those eight segments that the flu viruses have. So it can't do that same swapping of parts? All those
1: genetic shenanigans, as it were. But on the other hand, the coronavirus... It certainly has the capability of mutate, so it could change. Gotcha. So I guess the question people are asking, is it conceivable that with this particular coronavirus that we're gonna see versions of this as the years go by? You can never predict with certainty, but what I think we'll see over years is that we will either control it very well with a vaccine, which I do hope is the most likely option, or it will go through a couple of cycles of seasons, and then will take its place at a low-level threat, something that's present, that can be dealt with, that it doesn't, you know, impact us in a way that it's impacted now.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, I guess that's comforting to hear. I mean, the best case scenario being that we see a couple of cycles of this, and then a vaccine kind of tempers it and, and gently guides it into something of a low-level, right? Uh, something of a seasonal variety. Uh, what's the worst case scenario that, that keeps you up at night?
1: Well, I have to tell you the worst case scenario that keeps me up at night, I'm living through right now. A brand new virus that jumps species, infects humans, and has the combined capability of spreading extremely rapidly from human to human at the same time as it has a relatively high degree of morbidity and mortality. And that's exactly what we're in right now literally the perfect storm of a pandemic, which is the reason why, unlike other pandemics of different years, with the exception of 1918, which has some significant similarities, we have an epidemic that has essentially gripped the planet. So this is indeed an unprecedented situation. We've not been here before, certainly no one in our generations.
2: You know, this whole show, I feel like, you know, it started because of a conversation you and I were having about, uh, you know, what would it be like to emerge from this Mm COVID-19 era? So, okay, let's look back. Let's look back Mm -hmm. at 1918 and see what happened in the years after that. And in doing that, we found all of these tendrils, artistic, technological, social, Things that reached out not just past 1918, but all the way to now. And it just it just makes me feel like the way in which we think about the rulers of our histories are just not the rulers. <laughs> it's like somehow we are not the masters of our destiny in the way that we think.
13: It is interesting because it's like the things that catch our eye are not always the things that define us.
2: Yeah, that's a better way to put it. Yeah. It
5: was in 19, 119, yes, man
2: was Okay, very special thanks for these dispatches to Varina Gomper, Rajmohan Gandhi, Siddharth Chandra, David Arnold, Laura Spinney, Simon Jutras, who played the role of Georges Clemenceau, our own David Gable, who played the role of Woodrow Wilson, Dan Fink for casting, and also the uh, National Film Board of Canada for use of the film based on the book. By Margaret McMillan, Paris, 1919. Okay. It was I'm Jad Abumrad. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe, everybody.
7: This is Tim Scammell from New Maryland and New Brunswick,
12: Canada. Radio Lab is created by Jad Abumrad with Robert Krulwich and produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design, Susie Lechenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Habti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Keelty, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliyei, W. Harry Fortuna, Sarah Sandbach, Melissa O'Donnell, Tad Davis, and Russell Gregg. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris.